Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 203 of the podcast for June 23rd, 2014. My guest today is Christopher Jerry. Uh, Chris is founder of the Emily Jerry Foundation, and um, you may have read about this on my blog previously. The foundation was created, sadly, in the aftermath of the tragic death of uh, Emily Jerry, um, Chris's daughter, a few years back, uh, a preventable medical error that was caused by a number of factors and, and bad systems. And Chris, you know, I really admire that he's been able to channel, um, you know, his emotions in in the aftermath of, of losing his little girl into um, this advocacy for others, um, creating a foundation, telling a story, and I think more importantly, emphasizing the need um, to, to not just blame and punish individuals, but to focus on improving systems, improving processes, that that's the best way of protecting other patients and um, doing so as a way of honoring uh, Emily and, and her tragically short life and her memory. So th- this is going to be a multiple part podcast series in this first part today. Um, we really don't get beyond the, the story of, of what happened and um, the, the reactions in the aftermath to that. Um, I'm going to do either one or two more parts. Um, taking the remaining of audio and the rest of our discussion, release that as one or, or two more podcasts, depending on how that um, divides up. But certainly encourage you to go to leanblog.org slash 203. You can find links to the foundation website. You can read um, you know, more background, see some videos of, of Chris and Eric Kropp, the pharmacist um, who was, was blamed and punished and, and convicted and jailed. Uh, for his part or for for being there when this tragedy occurred and um, it, it's 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 a gripping story I hope you find it um, interesting and inspiring and that you'll um, want to do more to help whether that means um, helping the foundation or, or helping share uh, Chris's work and story um, uh, this is powerful stuff so thank you for listening and uh, if you want to subscribe and, and make sure you learn about the future episodes you can go to lean cast org. Well, Chris, hi. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast to talk about uh, you know, this incredibly important topic today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. I really do uh, uh, appreciate uh, the amazing work that you're doing uh, in the area of lean and um, how it can uh, positively affect, uh, you know, these these issues relating to uh, preventable medical error, and um, and uh, drive things forward in a very positive way. Well, well, thanks, and you're, you're you're too kind. But you know, there's there's so many of us in the lean community that who uh, are, are trying to help people improve quality and patient safety. Um, a lot of you know inspiration. Um, you know, comes from uh, you know, uh, comes from stories like yours and, and Emily's. Um, for those of us who haven't been um, touched directly ourselves or our families by um, preventable medical error, um, so I, I appreciate you sharing your story and, and, and working so hard to uh, to be able to help others. And you know, maybe if you can start off for our listeners, uh, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar. 
um, with with your story and Emily's story, if if you wouldn't mind, you know, maybe just starting off by telling that for. To, to uh, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm. Uh, my name is Chris Jerry. Um, I'm. I'm a very, very proud father of three amazing children, and um, you know, I know I'm stating the obvious here, Mark, but. I, I'm one of those individuals that believes every every child born into this world is truly a miracle, and they all deserve uh, to be treated as such, you know. And um, with that said, though, you know, my other two uh, children, Nate and Catherine, are 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 just in, in, incredible blessings. And so, but. What I want to say, uh, without uh, showing my other children any or any other children, for that matter, any disrespect, is the fact that Emily, from the day she was born, Mark, she was seemed a little different uh, than my other two. She was different in the sense that she seemed to be a a uh, right from the start. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it other than to say. Uh, her mother and I used to refer to Emily as, as as being kind of an old soul. She seemed to know a little bit more than my other children did. And she was unique in the other sense that she was always so happy. She didn't fuss like normal children do. Um, you know, you couldn't be sad around Emily for, for more than a nanosecond or two. You know, we could be upset as a family about something, and Emily would come strolling into the room just like laughing and giggling and what have you. And all of a sudden, you know, your biggest problems as a family seem so minuscule, you know. And uh, it just seemed to be a gift of hers. And she had a very vibrant spirit is is what I'm trying to uh, express. And uh, very, very energetic. And during the summer of uh, 2005, Mark, um, Emily was was uh, playing out in the backyard with her um, her her big brother and and big sister uh, Nate and Catherine, and they're running around. Uh, you know, a beautiful late summer day, um, and every once in a while, as I'm watching them from the upper deck run around the backyard and play around on the sprint swing set and things like that. I noticed Emily uh, every once in a while would stop and grab her side and wince in, in, in pain. And again, being the strong little girl she was, that would last all of a nanosecond and she'd be right back to doing what she was doing. Right. And maybe because she was our third child, Mark, um, you know, with your first baby, you know, you worry about every little sniffle and sneeze and you think, okay, uh, my son just sneezed. I got to run him to the ER. You know, he's got some horrible virus or something. You know, you, you're a little paranoid with your first. Um, with Emily, I, I wasn't too worried about it. I, I just witnessed this happen maybe three or four times over the course of an afternoon. And I thought to myself, you know, there's something going on there. She's showing, a, you know, as though she's a little uncomfortable in a little bit of pain every once in a while. Um, and I discussed it with Emily's mother, and uh, we both thought, okay, the next day we're, we're going to take her over uh, to a leading pediatric hospital here in Cleveland, just to have it checked out and just to try to find the source of, of Emily's uh, discomfort. 
we brought her in, Mark, um, in the early fall of 2005 to have her checked out, and uh, they decided to run Emily through the MRI to see what was going on. And my whole career had been spent in medical imaging, um, working with the, you know, the manufacturers of those systems, things. And, you know, so naturally I'm thinking to myself, well, boy, that sounds like the most reasonable, you know, course of treatment right now to try and find out, you know, what the source of the problem is. They run her through the MRI. They did that. And lo and behold, it was discovered that Emily had had a grapefruit size mass growing very rapidly in her abdomen. Um, it was the most shocking news that any parent could ever imagine, especially when little Emily, on the, uh, you know, outwardly didn't appear to be sick in any way, shape, or form. She looked to be a completely healthy little girl. And the decision was made pretty much immediately that, that the course of treatment for Emily... Uh, they assured Emily's mother and I that that this was a very, even though it was so large, it was very treatable. It was very similar to a yolk sac tumor. And they told us that we would need to bring Emily in for uh, about three days each month for routine chemotherapy. And then uh, after five or six months of treatment, that, that Emily would probably need to have surgery to remove any residual scar tissue that would remain from a, t a tumor with that, that, that type of size. And so we embarked as a family on this very scary road. And the pediatric uh, oncology team uh, set our expectations as Emily's parents as to what to expect. They told us, you know, Little Emily is going to lose all of her beautiful blonde ringlets of hair. She's going to lose a significant amount of weight. She's going to, especially right after the three-day rounds, she's going to be exhibiting flu-like symptoms. She's going to be vomiting and, and all of that. But not to worry because that is just going to be a very good sign that the tumor is actually responding to the chemotherapy. So mentally, we, uh, Emily's mother and I, um, you know, move forward with that, those kind of expectations. Mark, we brought Emily home from her first three-day round of, treat, of treatment. And I'm going to take little Emily out of her car seat at the top of our driveway and bring her inside. And as soon as I take her out of her car seat, that little girl's running towards the darn swing set. Immediately, you know, it, it, what toddler wouldn't after being cooped up in the hospital, right? <laughs> My point was, is I don't think, and I know I'm bragging a little bit here, Mark, but I think it's, it's warranted. Um, I don't think that my little girl, Emily, vomited one time after a chemotherapy regimen. She didn't start to lose her beautiful blonde ringlets of hair until about January of 2006, and I'm very proud to say I was told by her uh, pediatric oncology team that 
And this is at a facility that has uh, roughly 450 beds, so a pretty large children's hospital. I was told that Emily was their first pediatric oncology patient that actually didn't lose any weight during the course of her treatment. My little girl somehow, some way, actually gained a pound during the course of treatment. So naturally, uh, January, February rolls around. During her treatment, I started to think to myself, based on what I had been told previously, I started to think to myself, well, maybe that tumor is not responding to the chemotherapy treatment. And, and Emily's oncology team kind of thought the same thing. So they run her through the MRI again in, in the beginning of uh, February of 2006. And lo and behold, their words, not mine, Mark, a miracle had occurred. That miracle that had occurred was that not only had the tumor completely and totally disappeared, but there wasn't even any residual scar tissue remaining from that tumor, from that mass being so large. And we were all elated. I mean, this, that's the kind of miraculous outcome, again, their words, not mine, that I would, I would think every caregiver that gets involved in a, a, a career in healthcare would want to, want to experience at least once or twice during the course of their lengthy careers. And her oncology team, I mean, everybody, everybody at this facility, Mark, I have to say to the, our listeners that every caregiver, and I, I, I told you what kind of background I came from. My whole career was spent being on the business side of medical imaging and being in and out of hospitals throughout Europe and some in, some in the Middle East and things like that. Um, my expectations when Emily was first diagnosed were probably a little higher and kind of on a little on the obnoxious side mm -hmm. when, it, when it came to, <laughs> well, what came to what kind of expectations I had for the care that my daughter was going to receive when we started the treatment. And I have to say, and this is why I consider myself a very proud patient safety and caregiver advocate, is because every caregiver that came in contact with my daughter from day one loved my little girl up like she was their own right. and exceeded my very high expectations for, for the care that my little girl was going to receive. And that's why I think, ultimately, that's in large part why I think my, my daughter um, had, had overcome this horrible affliction. And, and, and I think we're all, I think we're in agreement. A lot of the listeners would agree, you know, as you talk about what, what then happened that um, none of this is a quote-unquote bad apple problem. I, I appreciate Precisely. that you're... That you're you know, expressing your gratitude and respect for all the great individuals um, who right. were involved in that care, right? Well, yes. And, and Mark, to speak to what you just said, I, what I'm trying to do is paint the picture here because everybody was so, so elated. Not only we as parents and as a, an extended family were happy with this outcome, the caregivers all were very proud as they should have been of what, what, uh, 
what, what had been accomplished with little Emily. And so I'll never forget, Mark, that, uh, you know, Emily's mother and I are, are seated then with the oncology team after they ran her through the MRI in the beginning of, of February. And they're all happy as can be, you know. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I initially when you're given that kind of news, I'm thinking, okay, well, we can dress my little girl up and, and bring her home. And they all immediately said uh, to Kelly's mother and I, well, we're going to recommend, you know, this is happy. You guys can begin your plans for uh, taking the family to Disney World and things of that nature to celebrate Emily's recovery. But we're going to recommend one final three-day round of chemotherapy just to make sure that, make certain, absolutely 100% certain that there are no residual cancer cells remaining in little Emily's body that could pop up later in life and cause her difficulty. And so naturally, uh, Emily's mother and I agreed to do that. We brought Emily in on, because we wanted to get this put behind us and move on as a family, we decided to bring Emily in on February 24th of 2006, which was a Friday, and that happened to be Emily's second birthday. I couldn't think to myself a better of a better birthday present to any child than knowing in the back of my mind, I'm going to be bringing her home cured. And so we actually celebrated Emily's, um, Emily's birthday at the medical facility um, that Friday. And we actually brought in uh, cupcakes and what have you. And, and by now, word had traveled throughout this 450-bed facility to the other floors and things, to all the caregivers and what have you, that, about Emily's miraculous recovery. And, Mark, I, I, in my younger years when I used to go to them, I swear I used to see shorter beer lines at rock concerts. Um, with, with respect to all the caregivers from these other floors that had never met Emily that wanted to come down and say happy birthday to her and, you know, give her small, you know, birthday cards and little gifts and treats and just kind of spoil her up a little bit. So it was amazing. And every, everything went well later that day with Emily's uh, uh, um, first day of, of her last uh, three of of the chemotherapy regimen, everything went fine. And then on Saturday, everything went fine as well. And on Sunday, Mark, is when, uh, when the nightmare began to unfold. Um, I had arrived. I was taking care of my other two children at home. And I had arrived at the, the the medical facility about 10 or 15 minutes after they had started Emily's IV. And when I walked into the treatment room that day, my, uh, my wife was holding uh, Emily unconscious in her arms. And... Um, I looked at her, and I still remember this, Mark, in, in very slow motion because 
it was just so shocking that, you know, I, I looked at my, my former wife, looked her in the eyes, and I, I said, what, you know, what's going on? What's wrong with Emily? And she just gave me this blank stare and kind of shook her head and was just, I saw just total fear in her eyes. And uh, I say I remember it in slow motion because it seemed like it was forever, but in that same fraction of a second, immediately all the alarms were going off and then uh, the nursing staff and the physicians and everybody were rushing in to the room. We all took Emily from, from uh, Kelly's arms and put her on, on a gurney together. And um, everybody's trying to figure out why did her condition deteriorate so quickly? And they're trying to stabilize her, and they obviously shut off the uh, the IV, and and we're trying to get Emily to regain consciousness. And we we all rushed Emily down to the PICU, the pediatric intensive care unit, which was on the same um, same floor as Emily's treatment room, and uh, they subsequently induced uh, Emily into a coma. And as the doctors and, and specialists are trying to assess what, it, what had happened to Emily, I was just sitting there with Emily's mother trying to figure out, you know, what, what the heck happened here? You know, I mean, she was just fine a day or two ago, and now my little girl's in your PICU, and, in, you know, induced into a coma. And it's not rocket science, Mark, but I, I came to the conclusion rather quickly that it had to be something relating to Emily's IV admixture. Had to be. And so I couldn't sit still for very long. Um, I immediately went back to the treatment, Emily's treatment room. And I had a nurse with me, and I, I immediately uh, started digging through the trash to find Emily's partially full bag. And uh, I did that, and I had the nurse call down for a hospital administrator, and I said, um, you know, please call an administrator, um, and she did, and the administrator came up, and I handed her the bag, and I said to her, I said, um, I really truly believe this is where you need to start your investigation, this has to be the reason my little girl is down in your PICU. It has to be. And so that's kind of where it started. And, um, and did, did they, did that administrator respond? I mean, did, did they respond, you know, in a way that took that seriously? Did they, yes, they, 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 they did they, listen to that. I have to say, Mark, yeah. they did take it very, very seriously. And I get asked this question often, you know, I'm a big, proponent of transparency when these things occur and to be honest and forthright with people especially when it comes to their loved ones and a lot of people ask me then subsequently well do you do you feel the the facility was being transparent with you because they felt that you you know you you found the smoking gun you know that you just because you dug through the trash and found that partially full bag and Mark, I'm of the attitude, you know, I'm always the, the optimist. I, I believe this facility was very, very transparent with Emily's mother and I 
with their root cause analysis and what had happened and what have you because it was the right thing to do because they knew they had to do it. I'd like to think that it's not just because I handed them that partially full bag. Okay. And that's, that's the walk that they seem to be walking now going forward years after Emily has passed. And so I'm very proud of them about that fact. Um, so, Anyway, they started the investigation, and, and they, they found out what had happened, Mark, was that um, a pharmacy technician who didn't have the proper training or core competency, and we'll go into that uh, in a little bit, uh, the clinical pharmacy had been out of standard bags of saline with 0.9% sodium chloride. And... In being out of standard bags of saline, the pharmacy technician who was on duty at that time thought that she was doing the right thing, and I really believe that she did think she was doing the right thing. She, she saw three vials of what's called hypertonic saline, which has 23.4% sodium chloride in concentration, which is just meant for small bol boluses. Um, or amounts to be added to people, I guess, that, that are a little bit dehydrated, that need electrolyte replacement and things of that nature. So she sees these three vials, and she thought she was doing the right thing. She grabs an empty compounding bag and then manually extracts these three vials of hypertonic saline, 23.4% concentration, and fills the bag full of this hypertonic saline and then added Emily's uh, chemotherapy agent to that. She even made the mistake of, of, as I understand it from talking with Eric Kropp, the, the pharmacist involved, that she had hand-labeled that bag with 0.9% sodium chloride, the correct concentration which is why Eric signed off on it that day. And it gets sent up to Emily's room. And the reason Emily was unconscious when I arrived at the hospital 10 or 15 minutes after they started the IV was because when somebody is overdosed on something as simple as, as a common electrolyte like sodium chloride, salt, it causes immediate cerebral edema or brain swelling. So Emily had actually gone unconscious passed out due to the pain that was involved. Um, not to paint, paint an even more tragic picture, but, you know, I want our listeners to know what happens. Mm -hmm. if, if anyone would think, oh, it's just saline, no, that, that has horrible consequences. Yes, as does, um, you know, in fact, uh, sodium chloride is is what I've learned since I, I, I began doing this work uh, in patient safety and working with uh, groups like uh, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, uh, ISMP, and the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. From, from the pharmacy experts, what I've learned um, is that uh, common electrolytes like sodium chloride, salt, Things like potassium, they're considered in the in the clinical pharmacy. They're considered um, high risk, 
very high risk medications that are that need to be kept under lock and key uh, because things like potassium are is what is used um, I guess when they're when when they're doing um, um, capital punishment where where they're executing somebody they use potassium to stop uh, you know a, a convicted person's uh, heart so in high concentrations you know it it can really you know if accidentally given uh to a patient in too high of a concentration these are are medications that actually can really really harm people and in the course of of that happening i mean i was jotting some things down here um at, at least four different things that I would I would consider systemic errors. Um, you mentioned the lack of training and credentialing, um, being stocked out of the standard bag of saline. Um, yes. You know, thinking she was doing the right thing. That, that kind of points to a, either, you know, again, lack of training, lack of supervision, lack of a culture where, where people can speak up and say, hey, wait a minute, we don't have the right bag. What, mm-hmm. what do you expect me to do? The, the, the labeling error. I mean, seems like um, just a, a litany of systemic of systemic errors, correct. And, and you were spot on there, um, Mark. Because um, what I was horrified to find out, uh, you know, a, a few weeks later is when the, the root cause analysis uh, study was a very comprehensive one uh, was completed, and um, the facility sat down with Emily's mother and I, and, and were very transparent about exactly what had happened. Um. You know, first and foremost, I have to say before I, I go there, you know, three days after Emily was was overdosed and induced into coma after multiple EEG showed little to no brain activity, Emily's mother and I had to make the worst decision of our lives, which was one that I hope none of our, our listeners ever have to make for any of their loved ones, but we had to make the decision to take Emily off of life support. And that day, and Mark, I know you've seen the, the you know, some of the, the videos and some of my presentations, but it's, it's, it, it's true. That day was the only time in my life that I had, had contemplated doing something incredibly stupid, which was, I, I had, been loading some of of Emily's um, personal belongings into our SUV that day, that which which was parked on the top floor of of the parking garage. And I saw Emily's car seat in that car as I'm loading her things, just so confused and so emotionally traumatized as her father, thinking to myself, "Hey, I was supposed to be taking my little girl home today." And now I'm not. Now she's she's my little girl's going to the morgue. I didn't understand. And it was at that moment that that I felt it, it was by the grace of God and by my little girl's spirit that they were hitting the pause button for a moment. And all of a sudden I started thinking rationally for a second because I was thinking, Mark, I maybe I should go take a flying leap. Go join my little girl and, and all of a sudden, it was like, no, you need to find out 
Daddy, you need to, to get to the bottom of this. What, what set these wonderful caregivers up to fail me? And you got to make sure that those systems and things are modified accordingly so that it doesn't happen to other people. So it was like at that point, Mark, a lot of people ask me, and I think this is very important. A lot of people ask me, Chris, when did you decide that, that this was going to be your calling? This was going to be your life's work. This is what you were going to do. It was kind of at that point. I knew immediately that this was the work that needed to be done. So after we had the root cause analysis with the facility where they were very open and transparent with us, told us it was a pharmacy technician error, naturally my next question in my mind was, well, wait a minute here. I, I would think that going into any major medical facility that is going to be giving you IV medications, which is most all of them when you go in for care, because a lot of times they'll give you uh, medications just to keep you hydrated and what have you. Um, I started researching immediately. You know, I thought it would be a pharmacist that would be compounding everything going right into someone's circulatory system. Right. Well, and let, let me ask one other question. I mean, when you talk about the root cause analysis, did the hospital show an appreciation for the systemic factors, including if, if I remember correctly, there was discussion of being overworked, understaffed, other other issues. Did they have an appreciation for that, or did they say, "Well, you know, that that person made a mistake," or was it all of that? It, it was kind of all of it together. They were all shocked themselves. Um, it, they were all shocked themselves, and and Mark, I think that goes back to the kind of the, the human nature side of things. Whether they said it or not, they did kind of point the finger initially, okay? They pointed the finger when they, when they immediately, um, and I didn't find out about this till afterwards, but, you know, I'd always wondered in my mind, why didn't the, 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 the pharmacy director or the, pharma the pharmacist that was involved that signed off on it, why wouldn't him and anybody else immediately come up to the PICU that day and, and just say, hey, we're sorry, we're looking into this. We don't know what happened yet, but we're looking into this, you know, and, and you know, we're, we're also, you know, deeply disturbed by the whole thing. And that never happened, and I, I never realized this. But one of the ways that, that they pointed the fingers, whether they, they said they did or they didn't, was by just like two days later, they they uh, they called Eric Crop and they called the pharmacy technician and asked them to come in. And Eric was the pharmacist. Yes, who, Eric who was the pharmacist yeah. in, involved, and um, Katie Dudash was the uh, pharmacy technician involved. And they call her, call them in, and immediately they fired her, fired them, both. And, and just told them to get their things and leave. And was this before the root cause analysis was done? Yes. Yeah, because it probably wouldn't get done in two days. Right, right. And then, uh, you know, the way that uh, Eric had to learn about Emily's death was uh, by one of his colleagues calling him up after he had been fired 
and saying, uh, you know, little Emily's passed away. Imagine how traumatic that is for them, you know, being the second victims. You know, uh, to have to learn of it that way, but to also initially have the finger pointed at you. I mean, here you're being fired. That's, that's before root cause analysis has even been done. You know, and I believe that it's because the facility may not have had, I, I believe that they didn't have anything that even looked like uh, what are called, you know, the just culture principles that you and I are big proponents of. Right. Uh, in place, they didn't know how to respond. Well, I think it's it's tempting. You talk about human nature, not just to blame, but to say, "Well, we we took action. We we held someone accountable. We fired two people." Precisely, and and, and, and that even to you know public perception or a lot, a lot of people who don't think about the systemic causes of problems that that sound well. You did something, or you know, I mean, that, right, that, you know. right. You responded to it, and and I, I again, I think it's human nature. I think all of us. You know, when something horrible happens, something tragic happens, I think it's part of human nature, part of the human condition to almost, uh, it, at least for a short period of time, to, for all of us to think to ourselves, no matter how rational you may be, to think to ourselves for a moment at least, who is, pardon my expression, Mark, but who is the SOB responsible? And, 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 you know, who is that person? We need to find this culprit. And I think it's part of human nature to kind of think to yourself in the back of your mind, not only do we need to find this person and, and associate blame, but we need to, um, you know, effectively have a public lynching somehow, some way. And that's exactly how I view things, of, you know, in terms of how they happen with, with uh, the pharmacist that was involved, Eric Kropp. And when, in fact, we, we find out that, you know, and, and I think this is what separates, separates people when these tragedies occur is how long do you have those thoughts for? Because if you follow through and you do have the public lynching and you do associate the blame even after root cause analysis has identified multiple system failures and processes and protocol failures, if we associate the blame with one individual and you have follow through and you have that public lynching, is anyone being made any safer? Are those systems and processes being modified accordingly so that those same errors don't happen over and over again well so that was part one of my discussion with uh, Chris Jerry um, I hope you'll come back and, and hear the the remaining part of the discussion you can go to leancast.org if you'd like to subscribe or um, you can go to leanblog.org you know you can sign up for email notifications of uh, new blog posts including um, these podcasts um, you hear the rest of the story where we're going to talk more about what's happening in the patient safety movement, what the foundation is doing, uh, what, what people like Chris are doing to try to help prevent tragedies like this from uh, occurring with other families and, and other children. So um, thanks for listening. And uh, again, you can go to leanblog.org slash 203 to find links uh, to, to stories 
um, that you can read online, other videos, things like that, um, if you'd like to dig deeper uh, into what's happening here. So again, thanks for taking time to listen. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.